Open your Bibles to Isaiah 41. We're going to be beginning in verse 21. So what is going to happen tomorrow? Do we know? Well, we know Fran's going to have a birthday, <laughs> you know, this week. And we, we know Bill and, and, and Fran are going to have an anniversary. And we know what's on our calendars, right? I go to my phone, which I don't have here. Uh, I go to our phone, and my phone tells me exactly what i got to do this week. But do we really know what tomorrow has in store for us? There are so many things that could happen that we don't know are going to happen. This morning, I set the alarm off on the church. I, I didn't know that was going to happen, right? I put, the, I put my number in. I, I did, I, somehow I had my hands full and hit it three enough times that I actually locked out the screen. So... The alarm goes off, and so I had to call. I called them. I preemptively called them and said, "Hey, it's me. You know, don't send. You know, I don't want to meet the sheriff this morning. Nice people, but I don't want to meet him on Sunday morning. We we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. We don't we don't know what today holds for us. But you know, humanity has this desire to know the future." We, we want to know what's going to happen so we can prepare for it, so that we, we know that we're not going to walk into something that we're not ready for. And many times in this world, people will, will actually turn to people that supposedly can tell the future, psychics, fortune tellers. And it's nothing new. We, we see in Scripture, uh, Paul encountered a couple of them. But today it just seems to be rampant that it's it's just, and it's even happening inside the church. I, last week I mentioned Bethel. I'm going to mention more about them today. We're going to in Sunday school we're we'll be watching a video that reviews one of their books uh, for the next two weeks. We're going to which talks about how does that compare to what the Bible says and shows us that they that they're falling into this 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 idea of new age belief in the church and they have such and it's like well it's just one church. No, they have a huge influence. There are people in Norway who are saying they're being influenced by Bethel. And their mu- their music industry, the music industry is being influenced by them. But I wanted to, I wanted to share, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy. I'm an accountant by training and trade for, for years before I was a pastor, and still that's the way I think. So I want to show you some numbers here on uh, some statistics. This first one is uh, based on a, thousand, a survey of 1,000 U.S. adults. How many of them have gone to see a psychic? And 22% of people of those 1,000 have gone to see a psychic. And you think, well, that's not that many. That's 220 people. And that's only 1,000 people. So statistically, if you put that out to all the people we have in the United States, there's a lot of people who go and see psychics. But it's only 22%, so that's not so bad. But what's interesting is when you break it down here, and no, no, I'm not trying to criticize women, but 33% of these 1,000 adults have actually consulted a medium, and 67% of them are women. So women are twice as likely to actually seek out a psychic. And i got to wonder, why is that? And I don't think it's any default in the woman. I don't think there's anything wrong with the woman. I think it's just the society that we live in. And it's us men who may not actually make women feel as safe as we think we do. The next one here is 41% of adults believe that psychics have genuine abilities. Even though I can show you video after video of people showing you how they do it. And social media makes it real easy. Go on social media, find somebody's Facebook page. Um, Somebody in the room has this problem. 
Somebody has a room has an aunt named so-and-so. They know because they find it on social media. But that surprised me. 41%. Next one. This is what I find interesting. Of all the markets, of all the people that do, these, that do the psychic readings, 15% of them are pet psychics. You want to know what your pet is thinking? I know what my pets are thinking. My pets are thinking, when are you going to feed me? Pet me now, and what are you doing on my bed? Not much to figure out there, but 15%. And what's interesting, if you think, keep remember that 15%, because in the next slide, it gives you an idea of how much money is spent. And I'm going to actually look at the numbers here. In 2021, $2.2 billion was spent on psychics. 15% of that is people trying to talk to their pets. So if you want to get into a market and you have no morals, become a pet psychic. The pet's not going to disagree with you. By next year, it's going to be $2.4 billion spent. Now, why, am I, why does this matter? Because this is just one of the areas where people turn to to determine the future. But we've got to understand is that Yahweh, God, alone, is the only one who determines the future. He not only determines the future, he works out the future. He steps into the future, he steps into our present, and he moves us in directions that lead to the future that is according to his will. All things work out for what God wants to have happen. And yes, free will comes into play. And we make mistakes, but even those end up working into God's will. We saw last week that Isaiah begins to talk about idols because God is talking about idols and he has very little respect for them. In fact, we know from Scripture that idols deeply grieve God. When we place something in our hearts above God, when we seek something besides God's word, besides God, it hurts him. He grieves about it. He's jealous. And as I said before in our lives today, we don't worship little figurines or little idols, but we have plenty of idols that we worship, whether it's our cell phones, our pride, our, ourselves, addictions. And many people apparently seek psychic services to determine their future, and they rely on that, and they plan their lives based upon that. See, the thing about it is, is idolatry is not just a problem in the secular pagan world. It's a human problem. Idolatry is a human. It has been from the start. In the garden, Adam and Eve. Did God really say this? Well, no, he said, he said we can't, you know, all except for the one, and we can't even touch it, or we're going to die, and the serpent says, oh, you're not going to die. You'll be like God. Sounds good, doesn't it? She's like, oh. And then, when they, then they grab the fruit and they see that it's beautiful. And it's good for eating. Nothing wrong with the fruit. It's the act. It's the symbol. The Bible constantly, God's word is constantly attacking idols vehemently. And that's because Jesus is so serious. He's serious about us being, him being the only thing we trust in. 
We should find our happiness solely in Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we don't enjoy the things that he gives us, but the source of that is Christ himself. Not us, not the things, it's Christ. The salvation that he offers us should be our whole life. He needs to be the source of our lives, the focus of our lives. But see, we have this problem that I think sometimes we have a tendency to to set the bar a little too low for Jesus. We we don't think that we don't think that he could do it. You know, Christian, is that following that stuff's not gonna make me happy? But this will now. So we gravitate towards those things that we think make us happy towards those things that we think can bring us assurance and peace. That's why people go to psychics. They want assurance. They want peace. Instead, we should open God's Word. It's all here. Our assurance, our peace is here. And see, idolatry is also why we struggle with persistent sin. It's not the sin. The sin is just the surface problem. The problem is the idolatry that's in our hearts. The real issue is that idolatry, the idol that we've, that's captured us and lies to us and tells us, no, 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 this is what you need. This will make you happy. You, you need this more than you need Jesus. You, know? you, can, you can deal with that later. We set our expectations way too low for our Savior. We leave him for these false pleasures, these, these things that lie to us. That they're empty salvations. They promise salvation, but in the reality, they're nothing. And worse yet, we try to have both. I'll do Jesus, and I'll do what I want. And we think that works. Now, it's either all Jesus or nothing. So God's going to address idols in the lives of the people. And he's also addressing them in our lives. He's going to challenge us by trying to get us to prove how worthwhile is that idol. Is that really a God? Are the, are the idol, have we made the idols in our lives into gods that can, that can tell our future, that can, that can guide our future? So let's look at Isaiah 41, starting at verse 21. And God says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. He's saying, bring your idols to me and let your idols tell us what's going to happen. Let them tell the future. Because if they can, then maybe they are God. Tell us of the former things. Tell us everything that happened in the past. What they are. That we may consider them. That we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. God's saying, prove it. You think this is so great? You think this idol you've placed in your life will save your life? Prove it. That's why sometimes it says that God hands us over to Satan. He's it. You, you want this? Go ahead. It's not that he doesn't love us. He, he watches us and it breaks his heart that we're doing that. But he's like, you, you want that so bad, I'm going to let you do with it. I'm going to let you deal with it and go through it. And you're going to understand that will not save you. You know, last week we saw God was challenging the nations to come and to reason with him. And, and reason with him about the past, the present, the future. And here God is zeroing in on the future. He says, Sh- show us. You, you, you're an idol? Show us the future. God knows the future. He, Yahweh knows what's going to happen. 
He wants us to think rationally about the idols in our lives. He's daring us to prove that those idols will do what we think they will do. Because he knows they won't. And that's not unreasonable. It's, it's not unreasonable. Really, in our world today, you know, if, you want, if, if I'm going to tell you something, then I better prove it. i got to show you. This is what it says. Or if I say this, then these are the studies that have to show it. And those studies have to be robust. Those studies, those can't, it can't be just three people that I went out and, and, and interviewed on the street and asked their opinion. It has to be valid data. It's not unreasonable. Think about the time that this was written. This was written in a time when the Jews were in exile in Babylon. And if you know anything about Mesopotamia, which is where it was, in the Iraq and Iran area amongst the Fertile Crescent, amongst the, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, there were a lot of idols. It was a very, very religious culture. Pagan deities and fortune-telling was rampant. And, and what they would do is the fortune tellers would consult their gods to determine the future. So you would you would want to know what your future is. So you would go, you would pay a fee to the to the to the priest. The priest would take an animal, cut it open, look at it. I mean, this is disgusting. Look at its entrails. Look at its intestines. And how those intestines were formed and moved, and how they where they looked, that would determine your future. Sound like a bunch of gobbledygook to you? It's no different than some guy coming in and saying, "I bet you I can tell your future." or looking at your palm and reading your palm, or putting out tarot cards. By the way, Bethel used tarot cards. So think about this. It's, it's no different than what was going on back then. It's just as crazy. I can no more tell your future by looking at tarot cards than and I can looking at the entrails of a goat. Not that I would ever do that. Just to give you an idea, I wanted to, did want to share with you something from from Bethel um, on Twitter. Chris Valentin is a he's a he's one of the associate pastors. He's up in the corner. Uh, he he quoted Bill Johnson. That's Bill Johnson. He's the senior pastor. And this is what Bill Johnson says: God is in charge, but He is not in control. He has left us in control. Hmm. Another thing that he says, he stated that God's hands are tied, but it is our prayer that frees him. He goes on to say that Adolf Hitler, Hitler is an example of how God is not in control, since he would never raise a person that we are called to pray against. What a bunch of utter blasphemy. This is totally against Scripture, and I'll show you. If we go to Job 42, verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no one no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's saying, God, I know you can do anything you want and nobody can stop you. And it's be right, it'd be just. In Psalm 135, 6, it says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps. God does what he wants to do. He, and he, but he's not some child who goes crazy and does everything that he wants to do. He can only do things that, within his, that, are within, that don't go against his character. And God's perfect. So everything he does is righteous. And everything he allows to happen has a purpose. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Hitler was put in place for a reason. He's there and there for the day of trouble. And even, so you say, well, that's all Old Testament. What about New Testament? Well, Paul talks about that. In Ephesians 1, 
He says, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That part in there, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, if, if God's not in control then the Bible's lying, and he's a liar. God is in control. But we're not being moved around like robots. We have free will, but God works that within his, his purview and within his will. I, I can't tell you exactly how it works because I'm not God. He understands it. He makes it work. So who do we need to go to for guidance? Who do we need to go to about our future, about our past, about our present? We need to go to him because he knows it all. We need to seek him. We're not the ones in control. I don't know about you that brings me some peace, knowing that, you know, I, I, I had no control. Well, I did. <laughs> I could have, like, put everything down and not hit the wrong buttons. But God has it worked out. It all worked out just fine. There was someone else in, our, in history who thought that they could wrest control from Yahweh, thought that they were the ones who should be in control. And one day he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire along with his offspring. God is the one who's in control. God is the one we need to seek. God is the one we need to place in the center of our lives and live our lives according to him. That's what we should be doing. God, as we bring our idols to him, he responds. He says, behold, not to us, he's saying to idols, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Idols that we place in our lives, those things that we place in front of God that we focus all of our attention on, when we should be focusing our attention on Christ, are nothing. Psychic readings are nothing. Fortune telling is nothing. The gadgets in our lives are nothing. The desires we have in our hearts for things we shouldn't have are nothing compared to the desire we should have for Christ. For us to turn from God to those things is an abomination. An abomination. And to prove his point, he's going to re God's going to reveal to us what he is going to do. In verse 25, he begins to reveal what's going to happen. This is what he says. He says, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning? that we might know, and beforehand, that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed it, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are. I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. What, what God is doing here, he is predicting somebody come from the north. And if you look at the map, if you see a map, you, know, you see where... where um, Cyrus would have come up over the Fertile Crescent because you can't go through the desert and would have come through the north and invaded through the north into Israel. He's talking about Cyrus the Great who was going to come and invade and take everything that the Babylonians had. And this is proof of God's sovereignty. Cyrus's rise was a surprise. Nobody expected it. He's going to conquer Babylon and all its territories. But it's also through Cyrus that God is going to restore the Jews to Jerusalem. 
He's the one who will make the decree that allows them to go back. He's the one actually who pays to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. God has a purpose. It is Cyrus who will allow God's will to continue. Not allow it. He will be the instrument that God uses to do it. God says in verse 28, he says, but when I look, there's no one. Among these is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. They don't answer. Psychics do not have the answer. Palm readers, tarot cards, they do not have the answer. They have a huge following. A lot of people follow them. Bethel Church has a mega church. Its influence is spread throughout the world, as I said, and throughout the music industry. But understand, just because the world is going in one direction does not mean that it's true. It doesn't. It doesn't establish truth. Numbers don't establish the truth. Reality does. And the reality is that there's only one God, there's only one Yahweh who is sovereign over all things. And it's Yahweh who does what he pleases to fulfill his will. And God has an alternative to the idols that we place in our lives. He has an alternative to it. And that's in his servant. And that's what he's going to talk about in verse 42. He has challenged us to bring our idols to him. Now he's going to say, okay, they they can't do anything for you, but let me show you who can. He says, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. If you remember, we did talk about this before. That's We're talking about it now again. I'll, I'll, br- I'll briefly talk about that, what that means. In a, in a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What we see here, if you look in the in the Hebrew, we start to see a tone change. God has changed his tone here. This is actually one of what's called one of the four servant songs of Isaiah. And it's a messianic song that is being sung. And it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who is a servant of Yahweh. He is the servant of his Father. He's the suffering servant. He's the alternative to all the idols. Jesus is not an abomination. He's a delight. We delight in Christ. It's kind of, there's actually a contrast between Jesus and Cyrus. Cyrus comes in and he stomps and he tramples and he destroys to overcome. What does Jesus do? He doesn't, doesn't break off a bruised reed. He doesn't quench a fire. Jesus gives our lives back to us. Those who are suffering get their life back. And he doesn't make a big grandstand about it. In Matthew 12, we, we have these verses quoted. So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make it known. <laughs> Throughout all the time he heals people, he says, Don't no, don't tell anybody. Go to the priest. Do what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to make your offering. But do not spread the word. Well, what would we do? 
What do psychics do? Oh, I'm, I'm going to have a big thing on TV. I got my billboards up. Jesus said, No, I'm, I'm here to do. I'm here for a purpose. But but don't don't just spread it all over. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, what's interesting is, what I just read you in Isaiah and what I just read you in Matthew is not word for word. Why is that? You notice that? See, these are the things in Scripture you've got to start noticing. If you see, if it references back to the Old Testament, read that and then read what it says. Why, why would that not be identical? Because this is not, they were, they were taught this. Okay? It wasn't, they didn't have a Bible that they could open up and read and compare and go like, oh, well, what did he say back in Isaiah? Oh, yeah, he said this. No, this is what the teachers would teach them. So somebody, Matthew had figured out either by Jesus teaching, because this is not Jesus speaking. This is that well, this was fulfilled, was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He's giving you a reason for who Jesus is. He, Matthew had been taught that, that this is what was going on. And it was referenced back here in Isaiah. One of the key words in these verses is justice. It's used three times in these verses in Isaiah. Now, this is more than just, you know, we want justice. We think of it as a legal term. It's more than just a legal term. See, God has a plan for us. He has a plan for human existence. It's the same plan he put into place back at the beginning, that we would be with him in in a perfect place, in a garden. We'd be in his presence. He'd be with us. And we're getting back to that. If If you look at Revelation, it very much reflects the Garden of Eden. And that's what we're getting back to. That's his plan. He knows what we need. He knows what's best for us. He knows what it means to truly make us happy and fulfilled. I don't know about you, but I don't always know what I need to be fulfilled. I woke up yesterday after taking a nap, and I just could not figure out what I needed. And I, I, Beth tried to tell me what I needed. I'm like, no, don't. Don't tell me what I need, because I don't know. I was out of sorts. I needed something, but I didn't know what it was. God does know. He knows what we need. And Jesus coming to die for our sins and offer salvation through belief in him is what we need. We need to trust in him. We need repentance and salvation. We need our sins taken out. And the only way that can happen is by the cross. And so that is part of God's... That was, the cross was a key component for God's way of reorganizing the world to go back to the way he wants it to be. We're just in that process. God's kingdom is going to come here on earth, it, and his will will be done. It's going to happen. It's what we were made for. But see, we long... Don't we long for a better world and a better life? Don't we long for true justice in our world and peace and assurance? What would it mean to live in a society where there was no corruption, no idolatry? We look at our world, we see the slums, we see the poor, we see the needy, we see the pain, the suffering, the poverty, the oppression. We see human misery. 
I was, I was going to put some pictures up, and I'm like, I don't want to put those pictures up because they're depressing. There's no doubt that as humanity, we have, we have arranged our lives around idols that do nothing but lie to us. And this is sometimes why we treat each other the way we do. It's more than just political dysfunction, which there's a lot of that going on right now. And because of that, because it's more than that, no political party, no person is going to be able to save us. No person is going to be able to make it right. In fact, nine times out of ten, the next person we pay to put in office is going to make it worse. I don't care what party you're from. It doesn't matter. It's still going to be bad. Because we deny God. We have denied God in all things. A spiritual evil that is prevalent in our society and the world is just spreading like crazy. I see it. I feel it. I sense the darkness that's rising. So should we just give up and, and not strive to make our society better? Well, well no. We, we, we shouldn't give up. We need to strive to make it better. But we also must humbly face the facts. In all of human history, we have failed to create a society that by its own self-determination that we would truly want to live in. They all have their faults. Even our founding fathers knew there were problems with the republic. Thomas Jefferson said, every 10, 20, 10 to 12 years, well, there needs to be a revolution. It needs to change. Because this is not perfect, but it's what we got now. Benjamin Franklin was asked, what do we have, sir? He says, you have a republic if you can keep it. Because, see, our salvation cannot come from the government. It can't come from the world. It can't come from ourselves. It only comes from the gentle servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only hope in this world lies in him. Verse 5 of chapter 42. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So this is God saying, I created it all. This is, I'm God. I'm the one. I'm Yahweh. I'm the one who did all this. Nobody else has. It's him. Him alone. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. God's going to take my hand. He's going to keep me. Remember when we were little kids and we, we, we couldn't find mommy or daddy? And, and when we found them, what would we do? We'd hug them and then what would you do? We'd grab their hand. <laughs> I'm not letting go now. God has us. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I, I, I don't necessarily think that he's just that this is saying that God's going to allow everybody out of jail. I think this is the prison of self that we've placed ourselves in. The prison of sin in our lives that we've placed ourselves in. He says, I am the Lord that is my name, my glory. I give it to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. I understand God has used 
He has used human leaders throughout history to make his will come into play. He used, he'll use Cyrus. Cyrus will be the one who will, who will put a decree out that they can, the Jews can return. And like I said, he'll pray for him. He used, he, he'll pay for it. He used Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. You know, Daniel was one of his advisors. He used Sennacherib of the Assyrians. He used Pharaoh. He uses Rome. He uses us. He used all of them. He used Alexander the Great. And all of this led, that point, those things led up to the point where Christ came. Christ came at the perfect time. Everything before that led up to that moment, and it all worked out to be perfect. And it changed the world. And the work that Jesus started continues in his true Church. Now, we, we feel at times that we're in a dungeon. We feel that, man, this is just a lost cause. What is going on? But see, Jesus himself has committed himself to us as adult idolaters. We, we're idolaters. And he still, even while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. And he'll love us until we finally get it. And he'll love us after we get it. God saved us by taking upon himself, upon Jesus Christ, our sins and dying on a cross. He gave ourselves back to us the way we should actually be. That's the power of Yahweh proving that he is really God. No other being, no other Elohim could do that. No other God could do that. So how do we respond? That's why we sang the song we just sang. I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds my hand. We respond with a new song. Verse 10 says, Sing us, Lord, a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages with that Kadar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. We need to be singing about God. Because the day is going to come when all the world is going to see it, and the world is going to praise God. All those of you look in Revelation, you see all these scenes of the angels, the heavenly hosts, and all of the, the, the 24 elders, everyone praising God. Guess what? We get to do that now. We can praise Him now. And Isaiah is calling the whole world to turn to God and worship Him. You know, grace shows its greatest power when it, when we, when it melts away and melts our hearts and makes us so glad to have Christ. And it leads us to worship Him as a source of our salvation. And this is why we come. This is why we come on Sunday morning. We don't just come just to sing songs. I, I'm, I'm amazed. I don't know whether you know this or not, but Rachel usually picks the songs. I give her my verse, I give her what I'm talking about, and she picks the songs. And I'm amazed so many times how they fit. Now today, the, today I, I kind of stepped in. Because <laughs> things were in my mind, I'm like, this is, we've got to do this song. I need to be reminded that I don't know who holds tomorrow, but I know he holds my hand. 
And I figure if I need to be remembered that, there's more of us there who need to be reminded of that. But we need to be singing with our heart out to God. I love it. I'm sitting, I'm sitting at home and all of a sudden Caleb walks through the room and he's singing a song, a Christian song or a hymn. We're teaching him the hymns. And he's just singing away. That does my heart joy. Now just think about this. How much joy do you think God has when he hears us singing? And you're like, well, Pastor, I don't, know, I don't have a good voice. So God knows that. He knows those who can and can't sing. And believe me, I don't believe anybody can't sing. He knows those who can and those who won't. Sing. Sing out. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. I mean, that shows our praise. It shows him how much we love him and how much, how much he's done for us. And if you say, well, I'm in public, I don't want to, great. But I hope in your heart you're singing out when you're at home. Because it's more than just the words we're singing. It's an attitude in our hearts. But see, as we're singing, we're waiting in anticipation of the return of Christ where everything's going to be made right. Verse 13 says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. This is very much an image of Christ returning at the last, at the last trumpet in Revelation. For a long time I have held my peace. It's been a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills. I will dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. And paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do. I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to these metal images, you are gods. He has now told us what he's going to do. We need to watch for it because he's going to do it because he's God. He knows the future. He works the future. He says, I will do these things. So what do we do? What do we take from this? Understand that the greatest... The greatest miracle in the universe is not in what he has done. We look out here today and we see the sun, we see the, see the trees, we see the grass, we see the beauty that soon will be there. It's kind of, you know, looks dead right now, but we know that, that the field over there is going to be green one day and the trees are going to be full of leaves. That is not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is in the transformation that God does in a compulsive idolater who becomes a joyful, joyful worshiper of Yahweh. That is the greatest miracle. We need miracles in our lives, in our society, in our church. We need, but see, in order for that to happen, the most important thing, it's not about modifying our behavior. It's about changing our heart. You could change the behavior. If the heart is still broken, you've got to mend the heart. Change the heart. Eliminating the idols doesn't do it. Our hearts need to be changed so that it, when we cast aside those idols, we're not going back to them. It doesn't, doesn't leave us. When we cast aside the idols in our lives, we're not feeling this sense of loss because we have Christ. 
who is so much more valuable than those idols and will fulfill us so much more. And that is what worship is. It's to be filled with this richness of Christ, of who He is, so much that everything else we've given up for Him don't matter. So open your heart. Change your heart. Ask God to change your heart and to receive a miracle. And then we need to live that miracle every day. Let's pray.